welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Ready, friends? Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to find your seats, grab yourselves a water. I should, um, I think I got this idea while I was sitting over here. Maybe next week uh, we're going to start selling fans that you all can purchase for uh, 50 cents to fund our first mission trip, which is actually something I need to announce real quickly. So I just connected the two in, while I was singing. Um, we have been exploring a long-term partnership and what that might look like somewhere other than this, the Twin Cities, and we feel like the Lord has led us to a place called the Dominican Republic for lots of reasons. I've shared a little bit about that. But I want to let you know that our first trip to the DR is going to be happening December 31st to January 7th. And we're looking for, uh, essentially we're looking for a small team of people to sort of go and lay the groundwork for what a partnership with a local church in the DR would be uh, with help from the organization that we're going through. So if you're interested in that or interested in being a part of this conversation uh, ongoing, this is a place we plan to keep going back to uh, year after year. So if that's of interest to you, would you please email Elaine at awakencommunity.com. Elaine will be here, I think, at the end of first hour in the back and, uh, and after second hour. She's helping head that up. And we, need, uh, we have uh, room for, or I should say we've, we've committed to 10. We have about six or seven committed so far, but we can bring uh, upwards of 10, 12, 15, 16, 20, whatever. Uh, they don't really care. Um, the more the merrier, right? So if you're interested in that, please uh, connect with Elaine or myself. Sound good? Fabuloso. Uh, my name's Micah, if we have not met. I am the lead pastor here at Awaken. And uh, Awaken exists sort of big, big, big picture, 30,000-foot fly over here. Awaken exists to partner with God in the ongoing work of redemption and to demonstrate or by demonstrating and announcing the way of Jesus in the world. So I don't know if you've ever wondered, like, what is this church about or why do you, sort of, how do you, how do you see yourselves as a part of this big story? And that, that's how we would articulate it, to partner with God in the ongoing work of redemption by, with our lives, demonstrating and announcing the way of Jesus. So then that looks like a particular version here at Awaken, we talk about wanting to be a safe place for people to ask questions and to journey with Jesus. Uh, we talk about wanting to be a group of people that are waking up to who God is and what God's doing in the world and in our own lives. Um, so if you've never heard that before uh, or heard it said, I would say you hear it every Sunday morning, uh, that little video that we play at the beginning. It's like a Novocaine drip. It's supposed, but it's supposed to be like a, not a Novocaine, like it should numb you, but sort of like a, a, you know, you're always getting this. The vision of our church is right in front of you. In case you didn't know, maybe next week you'd you pay closer attention knowing what the content of the video is. So that's who we are. That's what we're about, which, which leads to this series that we're in called Lost in Translation. We've been taking difficult passages and trying to understand them. Passages that often I think the church or pastors or people like me steer clear from because they're really hard to, uh, to navigate. And we're okay with questions. Uh, that, that's a part of faith, actually. People think of questions as, or doubt as the opposite of faith. And I would say that doubt is necessary for faith. If there isn't doubt or if there isn't uncertainty, then it's not faith, right? It's fact. So part of faith is the, 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 the intention the possibility or the wonder of how do we understand this. So questions are a good thing. And what we do here on Sunday morning, what I'm about to do is the beginning of a conversation, not the end. We don't think that the pastor has the word on the street or the, the sort of corner on truth. Hopefully what someone brings uh, in my position is helpful for your growth as in, in your spiritual lives, but I don't have all the answers. So this is the beginning of a conversation. 
which means that life groups and what happens outside of Sunday is all the more important in your families or uh, the community groups that you're a part of. So that's what we're going to do this morning is tackle a difficult passage. Um, and this is from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So I'll ask you to stand if you can uh, as we read God's word. This is starting in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There are black pew Bibles in front of you if you're interested in following along old school style. But their minds were made dull. For to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Pray with me. God, this morning, as we gather as your church, one small expression across the world, I pray that you might speak to us, that you might guide us, lead us, invite us into uh, deeper and deeper into the mystery of who you are. So God, would you... Uh, Remove the veil from our eyes, if there is one, that we might see you for who you are, Jesus. And I pray in the strong name of Christ and all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. I want to begin with a problem this morning. And then I want to try to solve or at least offer an explanation or some thoughts on that problem. The problem is this. Many of us, while we believe something with our words, we affirm something about God with our words don't actually experience the, tr the reality of that truth as real in our own lives. So while many of us affirm something about God, we say, I believe this about God, if we get right down to it, many of us don't actually experience that truth as real for ourselves or in our own lives. It's disconnected. A belief we might have is disconnected for our, from our experience as real. For example, the Bible says that we're forgiven, that we're set free from sin and death and our past. And yet for many of us, we walk in these doors, we would affirm that to be true with our words, and yet we don't experience that truth as real in our own lives. In fact, we feel very guilty. We feel very ashamed. We can't let go of, we can't get out from underneath whatever it is that we've done or said or did or some past experience that we may have had. And we don't experience freedom. We don't experience forgiveness. We actually experience guilt and shame. For example, the Bible says that we are more than conquerors in Christ. In Christ, you are more than a conqueror. But many of you walked in this morning and you're thinking you can't conquer the grocery list or the, the task of parenting your children that God has given you as a gift. <laughs> remember that, friends, if you remember nothing else from this morning. They're gifts. They're not minions, monkeys, troublemakers. Oh, we can't conquer the lawn or the groceries or the, the, the lists or the bills or any number of other things, right? We're more than conquerors, and yet that's not our experience. That's not our reality. We don't live that. The Bible says that we are children of God, that you, as a person of faith, have been adopted into a family, that you are a co-heir. Whatever Jesus inherits, you inherit and yet for many of us, the last thing we feel is that we're a part of something. In fact, we feel very alone, isolated. We feel that the last thing we are is inheritors of what Jesus inherits, victorious. Why is that? 
Why is it that we can say we believe something, but then our actual experience of reality doesn't match up with what we say we believe? For many, there's a disconnect. And that may not be you this morning, but I think for many of us, I'll say for myself and the people that I've spoken to and talked to, that's often the case. Maybe not on every level, but on some levels. There's a disconnect, there's a chasm between I affirm this belief about God, I affirm this truth, and yet my experience of real life doesn't necessarily coincide with or match up with that. Why is that? Why do we struggle with that? So this morning, uh, that's what I want to try to tackle. Many of you asked in your request for this series, I gave you an opportunity to sort of talk back what do you want to study and what do you want to hear, and there were a lot of you. I was surprised at the number of folks, this one wasn't on my radar, Uh, And it came up in this word that you may have heard before called sanctification. What does it mean to be sanctified? Or what is the process of sanctification look like? And really that's a theological way of saying how are we changed? How do we experience transformation and change in our own lives? The word sanctify comes from a Latin word, sanctificare. comes from two words which means holy and to make. So the idea of sanctify is to make something holy or to set it apart to consecrate it, to set it apart for a particular use or a special purpose to be made holy or sacred. I would simply say it this way. In terms of Christian theology, it's the process by which we are changed and transformed to look more and more like Jesus. So sanctification, this big word, what is it? I would would argue it this way. It's the process by which we are changed and transformed to look more and more like Jesus. So I want to begin this morning by saying this. Everything that we know to be true and experience as real about God is rooted in or culminates in the incarnation. I'll say that again. Everything we know to be true and experience as real about God is rooted in or at least culminates in the incarnation. So what's the incarnation? It's not, uh, uh, it's not a, a powdered milk. That's carnation instant breakfast. It's a little different than that. The incarnation, what is that? Simply, I would say it this way. It's the action and movement of God to become human in Jesus. This large theological idea that Paul talks about in Philippians 2, it's simply the action and the movement of God to become human in Jesus. So if you're thinking before Jesus shows up, all that's revealed about God is culminated in Jesus We get the full revelation of who God is, and then everything after that that we know to be true about God, we point back to it's rooted in the action and movement of God to become human. Paul says in Philippians 2 that Jesus doesn't consider equality or his position with God as the second person of the Trinity something to be held onto or grasped, but rather Jesus freely sets that that down and becomes human. It's the action and movement of God to become human in Jesus. So Jesus lays down this this position that he has and becomes human freely, lives as one of us, lives with us, dies as one of us, and dies for us. This is the incarnation of God. So the truth about God, anything that you know or would affirm about God, I would submit to you, goes back to or is culminated in the revelation of God in Jesus, the incarnation. So the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God, the power of God, the faithfulness of God, anything we know about those things... We know because it was enfleshed and made concrete in the person of Jesus. To the degree that something is enfleshed and made concrete and seen in our mind's eye, some would say our imagination, 
is the degree to which we can be transformed and changed by that idea or that truth. Now, before you go crazy on me, when I say imagination, some people would say, well, imagination, that's like, you know, willy-nilly, that's, you know, storybooks and kids. Sure, the imagination can lead you away from reality. I would, the imagination is simply our ability to represent or remember something that's real. Or imagine or picture something that's real. So the imagination can certainly take us away from reality, things that are actually true. But I would submit to you that it's actually the key to knowing what is true and what isn't true and experiencing that truth as real. To the degree that something is enfleshed and made concrete and seen in our minds is the degree to which we can be changed and transformed by that truth. Uh, I need a volunteer, somebody close to the front here, somebody brave, um, need a, one volunteer. I won't embarrass you, I promise, but I need, I need uh, somebody to help me out here. Not everybody at once, come on. Christopher, come on up here. Everybody say thank you to Chris. Chris, thank you. This is Chris Kimston. Chris is a second year, third year. Third year. He's past the halfway point in his seminary, seminary schooling, which is something to celebrate. That's great. Chris, here's what I need you to do. Okay. I need you to tell me the truth about the content of your counter at home. Said differently, what is on your counter um, right now? Bananas. My wife's keys. Keys, bananas. A uh, bread box. A bread box. And some dishes that aren't done. Dishes that aren't done. Good. Anybody else have dishes that aren't done on their counter at home right now? Okay. Chris, how did you know that? Because I saw them this morning before I left. Ah, so it wasn't zeros and ones falling down a screen. Correct. <laughs> it was an image of something that you saw in your brain. Right. So that's what's true about your counter at home. Yes. Thank you, Chris. Everybody. How do you know someone loves you? It's not zeros and ones, right, on a screen, or it's not black and white text on a page. You know someone loves you because you replay or represent or remember the actions of love that were directed at you, right? So you know someone loves you because you can recall, represent, the actions of love that they've directed at you in your mind. How do you know it's in the back seat of your car? How do you know anything? I would submit to you that we say we would affirm something as true because we have seen it or experienced it as real and there's a, there's a picture of it, literally, in our brains. This is how our brain works. So this is part theology, part neuroscience this morning, right? But I want to argue that this is absolutely the key, absolutely the key to this process of transformation and sanctification. I want to argue that we are transformed and changed by the truths of God and about God, and the process by which we're changed is directly connected to our ability or inability to see in our minds or experience those things as real. You don't experience God as forgiving and gracious because the picture, the image of God that you have is less than forgiving and gracious. You don't experience God as loving and forgiving because the picture or the image of God that you have in your brain is less than forgiving and loving. Many of us has ne have never been trained or even invited to access what I would argue is the single most important 
tool in the process of being changed. And it's the six inches between your head, between your ears. For many of you, it's a little bit more. For some of you, it's a little bit less. <laughs> Which has more to do with your family history and your DNA than your ability to be transformed. The process by which we're changed and transformed. And friends, I wanna, I wanna ask you right now, let me just pause. Some of you may be saying like, this is a little hokey. This seems a little like new agey, a little uh, Oprah-esque, uh, or someone else, right? Gang, I'm gonna argue from scripture that this is absolutely rooted in scripture in the text. And that many of us are come from a tradition that doesn't value or didn't value this part of our created person. But rather, what's important for us as evangelical Protestants who come from the Enlightenment and modernism is data and whether or not I can prove it in a lab. How do I know something's true? Well, data points. Scientific method. Empiricism. That's not how the humans have thought for all of history, friends. And we inherit a tradition that values certain things about how we know something to be true. But I think, I would argue, you could go back in church history and find saint after saint after saint after saint going all the way back to even Origen, which is like a third century church father, talking about the importance of the imagination and our minds in our spiritual development. So lest you think I'm crazy, I've read this passage from 2 Corinthians 3. Now I want to unpack it and try to show you how Paul talks about this. So let's jump in. If you have your Bibles, turn them open, look at uh, the verses we read. 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 14. It's important to understand what Paul's doing here in terms of context. He's referencing an experience that Moses had in Exodus 34, and he's talking about that experience, and then he's using that as an illustration for something in his, in his day and his age. Okay? He says, but their minds were made dull. By this veil that was over their mind. So what's he talking about? Exodus 34, Moses goes up on the mountain. He receives the Ten Commandments for the second time. He comes back and his face is glowing. People, it's so bright, people can't look at him. And so they put a veil over his face. Paul takes that analogy and then he says, Jew, unbelieving Jews among you, to the church in Corinth, when the, when the law, when Torah is read, there is a veil over their What? Minds, it says. He first uses the word mind. He says there's a veil over their minds, which is to say that they can't see something because there's a veil, there's something blocking it in their minds. Then he goes on to say, even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Now you might be wondering, why mind, then heart? For a Hebrew, the mind and the heart are Literally the same thing. It's not until you get into the Greek way of understanding the world, which the whole West is the inheritors of, that you get this difference between the cognitive, cognitive part of ourselves and the emotional feeling part of ourselves. Therapists in the room, you're going to love this, right? These are not differentiated parts of ourself. This is all one piece, and the Hebrews would have said, it's all one. So really, you could say, you could read what Paul's saying, you could say, but their minds, their mind heart... Their mind hearts were made dull. And then he goes on and he says, even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their mind heart. It's the same thing, okay? It's essentially the seat of the person. It's, it's the, the, the very essence. So he says, there's a sense in which these people, unbelieving Jews, there's a veil that covers their mind heart. 
And they can't understand or see the truth about God in Jesus because there's a veil that's covered their mind heart. Like they can't see. This is why Paul says that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing because they can't see it. They can't see the truth about God in Jesus. So this is why he says that. They can't see because in their mind, their heart, the truth about God, there's a veil that's there. But, I love the buts of the Bible. Hello, come on, everybody. Verse 16, but, Paul says, but, whenever anyone turns to the Lord in faith, the veil is removed, Paul says. So when someone turns to the Lord in faith, the veil that covers their mind heart, which disables their ability to see the truth about God, is removed. And they can see in their mind heart the truth about God in Jesus. Paul goes on to say then that the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom for what? The freedom to see. The freedom to see in our mind heart what God is and who God is in Jesus. Not the freedom to do whatever you want, or the freedom to be a Republican, or the freedom to be a... No, the freedom to see God for who God is, Paul says. Because the Lord is there, when you turn to the Lord in faith, the veil is removed. Where the Lord is, the Spirit is, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Freedom to do what? To dance. No, to see, to behold the truth of God in Jesus, as revealed to us in Jesus. We know something is true, and our lives are affected by that truth because we see it. Either in real time, or we remember it, we represent it in our mind. Now, here's the link. Paul says in verse 18, he brings the metaphor together. He says, and we all who have turned to the Lord in faith with unveiled faces contemplate, some of your texts might say, behold, what? The Lord's glory, the person of Jesus, who is the epicenter, the culmination of the glory of God, and are being transformed because we see, because we behold, we're changed into what? Ever-increasing glory, which is to say more and more and more like Jesus. So what I began with, to the degree to which you can present in your mind something as true is the degree to which you can be transformed and changed by that image, that's exactly what Paul just said. We all, with unveiled faces, when we turn to the Lord in faith, we can see God for who God really is, and as we behold, the word behold that he uses here is trizo, and it literally means to behold or to, to, to see as in a mirror, to reflect. As we behold, as we contemplate, as we think about in our mind, we're trans we can be transformed and changed by those images. So why don't I experience God as forgiving? Is it possible that there is an image or a picture or an experience that you have attached to how you see God that is less than forgiving? Now, friends, this is where it gets crazy town cool. There's a neuroscientist that's doing research right now, and what he argues is that negative experiences that we have, things that are less than positive, things that are negative or produce anxiety or fear, uh, these things, our ability to remember them, they're like Velcro. They stick. We don't have to work at it. They just stick. And things that we experience that are positive and joy-filled and loving and hopeful, we actually, unless we contemplate and behold and savor those moments for 15 seconds or more, it's like Teflon. 
It just slides off. In our ability to remember it, in our ability to represent those moments in our mind's eye. Gang, why do so many of us not experience God as forgiving and loving and gracious? Because negative experiences that we've had in our life, they stick. They all stick. You get 99 emails and they say that you're the best accountant in the entire world and one of them says you're terrible. What do you go home thinking about? The one terrible email you've gotten. Why? Because negative experiences imprint on our mind faster and more easily than positive and hopeful things imprint on our minds. So you can go to the circus and you can be filled with wonder and delight and clowns and lovely people except for the kids that cry when they see the clowns. And, and none of this can change you. Why? Because you haven't savored it. You haven't contemplated it. You haven't stuck with it for a while so that it imprints on your brain. God is Father. Scripture says that God is like a father, right? And for many of you in the room, that is a very difficult proposition. And for me, for a very, very long time, it was a very difficult proposition. When I would think of God as Father, and as I was preparing for this message this week and I was, I was practicing what I'm asking you to, I'm inviting you to practice, I was literally at this church planter's assessment in this you know, hotel room, conference room, halogen lights everywhere, bottles of water and terrible mints on the table. Are you there? Yeah, okay. So I'm there in a room, and I'm practicing this, and I'm, I'm walking myself through my experience of God as Father, and the image that I saw that I think I have always seen is the back of my dad's head as he walked out of our house when I was 18, the last time he ever lived with us. And it wasn't until I started practicing this practice of imaginative prayer, or in the church tradition it's called cataphatic prayer, where I invited the Lord into that space that God began to transform that image and change that image, that that is not true about who God is and the character of God is not the back of my dad's head walking out the door or whatever it is you might see. And it wasn't until I, trusting the Holy Spirit, invited God into that space in my mind and I would go to this little place in Colorado where I fished, this little spot where the river came around and there was a little bridge to get over and I would sit on this little grassy knoll by the river and Jesus, I imagine Jesus as a fly fisherman. Because he is. <laughs> and I, Jesus would come out of the water and he would sit with me. And it wasn't until this moment when I imagined, like as a 10, and, and I saw myself as like a 10-year-old boy. And I would lay my head in Jesus' lap and he would just stroke my hair like a father would a son. And it wasn't until I invited God into that space in my mind to see what's actually true about God, that God is a good, good father, that God is like a father who loves me unconditionally. And it wasn't until I invited the Spirit to lead me to that image that I was able to be transformed by. And now when I think about God as a father, it doesn't, it doesn't always bring up negative emotions and energy and, and memories, but it be, I be, I'm beginning to learn that God looks different. So whatever it is that you don't experience as real, but you affirm as true, may I submit the possibility that there's something connected to that for you and your past that needs to be transformed and changed. And this is where the work of the Holy Spirit and sanctification begins and happens. 
My sister-in-law, when I was talking about this uh, with her, she told me this story about uh, there was this, this experience that she had where they were at a pool and uh, uh, at a uh, resort or something, and her, little, her son, her little boy, had, uh, she was looking the other way or doing something, and he had fallen into the pool. And when she looked back and saw the pool, all that she saw was her son at the bottom of the pool. And for the longest time, all she could ask was, God, where were you? In that moment, where were you? And she began to invite the Lord into that space, and the Lord showed her an image, a picture of angels that were surrounding her and her son in this moment. That what was true was that she was not alone, that, she, that God had not abandoned her. But that, in fact, God was there with her in that moment. That's what's true about God. But until we can see it in our mind's eye, we can't be changed by it. But when we can, it changes everything. Friends, I want to encourage you, I want to implore you to consider that what you don't experience as real about God is not because God isn't that, but possibly that there is something in your memory, in your cache, that you access and you represent instead of what's true about God. This is the process of being sanctified, being made holy, being transformed and being changed. If all we hang on to and all we see when we think about God is whatever images or, or negative experiences and, and emotions we have in the bank, then that's what changes us. That's what impacts us. That's what affects us. And so we don't experience God as real. We don't experience God as loving and as forgiving and as always present and with us. In fact, we experience God as one who is absent and gone. As we trust the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the scripture says, is the spirit of truth. We needn't be afraid when we ask the Holy Spirit to lead us. To lead us to, to represent whatever truths we need to see about God and Jesus until we can see it with unveiled faces. So I want to close this morning. I actually have a wardrobe change because I knew this would happen. My gosh. I thought, oh, I'll, I'll just stay calm on this one. I won't, get up, I won't get all ratcheted up. I want, to, I want to close by offering you the opportunity, even just for a moment, to, ex to begin this practice. In the church tradition, this is called cataphatic prayer. Look it up. St. Ignatius of Loyola is a, is a huge proponent of it. He talks about the, 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 Im the imagination as the sacred seat of our minds, of, our, of ourselves. Uh, A.W. Tozier says, the Holy Spirit presents Christ to our inner vision. He says, gaze on Christ with the eyes of our soul. So I want to I invite you to participate in this, and then we're going to move towards communion this morning. So I'm going to invite John Mark and the band to come up. Uh, we saved uh, a little bit of this for the end uh, and went right to the teaching because we knew we wanted, I wanted to try to give you this experience. So I recognize that what I'm asking you may seem very, very new, and it, you may not even know what to do with it. That's okay. It's totally cool. I would, I would just, I would only ask that you consider what I'm saying. And if I have appropriately understood this passage, then what does that mean? And if you would, I want to lead you in, this pro, in, in, in a small exercise. Uh, and then we'll move towards communion. So maybe if you would, just uh, close your eyes and 
if you need to spread out from some people around you, there should be uh, some room in your pews. And I want to invite you to imagine, to engage your imagination. Holy Spirit, right now we ask you to lead us. We ask you to guide us. You are the spirit of truth, and we need not fear when you are in control. So Holy Spirit, be the one who leads us. So I want to invite you to think about one specific truth that you may be affirm about God but don't experience as real in your own life. Whatever that is, maybe it's forgiveness, maybe it's love, maybe it's God as a father, maybe it's God as a mother, maybe it's some aspect of God that you would say, I affirm that, but I don't experience it as real. I want to invite you in your mind to find a place where you are safe and you are at peace. Some have told me before that these are a childhood home or the mountains or for me it's this river. Imagine yourself in a place where you are safe and you're at peace. There's no anxiety. There's no fear. And see yourself there in your mind. Now in, your, in the quietness of your heart, I want to ask you to Invite the Holy Spirit to lead you. I want to invite you to represent Jesus. Whatever Jesus you think looks like to you, I want you to imagine that he's there. Some people say it's just a light or a face or a presence. Whatever it looks like, Imagine that Jesus is with you in that place. And I want to invite you to ask Jesus to speak to, to reveal what's true about God related to whatever it is that you struggle to experience as real. So maybe it's just, Jesus, speak to me and show me what you look like. Spend a few moments here. Trust the Holy Spirit. Maybe just in your own words, thank God, thank the Spirit, thank Jesus for being present to you. And I want to invite you, as you think about your own spiritual journey, to set a, take time and, and engage in this where you invite the Holy Spirit to transform and change, to turn on the lights, whatever images, whatever pictures that we have of God that are less than true, to show us what's real and invite us to that. We're going to move towards a time of communion, which is really just an effort to represent something that we believe to be true and real about God. God is the offered the body of Christ and the blood of Christ for us. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which has been broken for you. Whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took a cup. And he said, this is a cup, a new, a new cup, a new covenant in my blood. When you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. 
So in just a moment, we'll invite you to come to the Lord's table and, and actively participate in something that's true and real about God, who's given himself for us. So when you come, we'll invite you to come down the center aisle, uh, take the bread and dip it in the cup. There's red wine and there's white grape juice. Uh, and the gluten-free station will be on the far left over here. So you can just stay in the left line if you need that. Um, the kids are going to come and we bless them with honey and say, may the word of God be like honey on your lips. And so they'll come down in just a moment. Uh, and when they're done, you're welcome to come when the servers are in place uh, to come and to receive the Lord's table. John's going to lead us in songs so you can participate in that. If you need prayer for anything, um, please know that our prayer team would be thrilled to pray with you, honored to pray with you. Um, so let's feast on the Lord's table. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Grace and peace, friends. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.